a random encounter at a broadcasting facility, a shared interest and love of all things Marvel, Excelsior, a misinterpreted program title, and behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick, podcaster and comic book enthusiast, and Eddie Wilson, upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, I'm Paul Kupperberg, writer and editor, and you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And joining us on the other end of the tin can and string, we are joined with writer extraordinaire Paul Kupperberg. Paul, good evening. Good evening. So one of the reasons we brought you on the show is going to be something that Eddie has in hand, or at least on his right, the Marvel Yikes. novels. You, <laughs> the Marvel novels. Your left, my right. That you were Don't want to know. <laughs> better off. Well, there's a bag there, his, his little uh, Captain America bag. It's a protective bag. Sleeve for the paperback novel that I have. What the Captain America bag? Not the no. But anyway, so the the original reason that I had brought you on, I wanted to bring you on about a year ago, but you know, con- conflicting schedules, especially on our end, I wanted to bring you on and talk about the Marvel the um, Marvel novels that you had written. Right. And then a TV show came along. And by then you read na- them and said, "Oh my God, why would you?" about this. <laughs> so. Well, one thing that had happened was a little TV show by the name of Peacemaker came along on HBO Max, and it got a lot of attention, and a lot of attention towards your writing on both of the characters, Peacemaker and Vigilante, and obviously we're the Marvelists, but, you know, we like to delve into the distinguished competition from time to time, and... This is one of them. I'm, I'm a big fan of what DC does, especially in the 1980s, so being able to talk with somebody who is heavily involved in that era and creating some just legendary runs that more people really need to read and check out because, holy shit... Yeah, I think you should insist that people write DC Comics and have them uh, put out collected editions of, of Vigilante and Checkmate for sure. I'm genuinely shocked. And, oh, I'm genuinely yeah. I'm genuinely shocked that I, they stopped at Volume One with the uh, Marv Wolfman, and then it it literally says Volume One, and oh, where's the rest? Well, yeah, it's DC. Yeah, and and I don't think we're going to see the Peacemaker miniseries coming from them soon. Which I'm um, very shocked because there's heavily de- they're heavily demanded books right now. Like I'm trying to track down, you know, the floppies and can't get them. They're like you I, know, I understand, but you know, when you see the story, and you can find it online, I'm sure. Uh, you know, read it on, on one of these online places. Uh, but it is terribly politically incorrect. I mean, you know, keep in mind this is uh, what 35 years ago. And, um, you know, my portrayal of people from the Middle East and, and uh, the use of Dr. Sims and the Batman villain. Um, uh, again, I didn't do anything, you know, racist or stereotypical. I just kind of handled it the way that stuff was handled in the 80s. And I don't think it would go so well in the 2020s. I mean, I get that, but I'm 
one thing I wish these, you know, the publishing companies would do when it comes to sensitive material like that would be to do what Warner Brothers does with their, you know, the Looney Tunes cartoons. Put like maybe a little discretion and say, hey, listen, you know, yeah. this was of the time. And then, you know, boom, you're just, you know, right off the gate. Yeah, I guess. But, uh, uh, yeah, we'll see. I mean, depends on 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 how high the demand gets. The, um, uh, the second uh, season has been announced. So, you know. And one of the things is your run on both Vigilante and Peacemaker were heavily influenced for James Gunn's portrayal to the point where James Gunn showed up in your mentions on uh, Twitter uh, non-provoked, and it was kind of fun to see that, just, you know, him acknowledging how impactful your work was on that series. Well, I, I did kind of, uh, you know, when I, when, when I heard the announcement about the show, I did tweet to him and say, hey, I'm the guy you might have uh, checked out his stuff. To, to come up with your show for, and which is not actual uh, an actual sentence, I wrote in, in actual grammatical English. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, I, and he he wrote back. He, he tweeted back saying, you know, sure, you, you know, I was reading and rereading these these comics while I was writing the Suicide Squad, and uh, so yeah, no, he's been very generous in his, uh, uh, you know, in in his giving credit, uh, you know, to me and other people. You know, he put John Ostrander uh, in a cameo in Suicide Squad. Not that I'm hinting for a cameo. I, I, I actually don't think I, I I would come across very well. But, you know. I mean, in the interest of fairness, you know, he also did offer you that, uh, the red carpet one. You were invited for that as well, which I'm insanely yes, I jealous. Was. I was in L.A., yeah. Well, you know, Paul, even if there were like uh, Marvel has done with, they think, Al Milgram and put it as the title of a hotel name on the awning. If your name was somewhere in the background, like an Easter egg thing, then that's <laughs> well, something. There is in, in, what is that? I think it's episode five. There's some talk about something, you know, some guy. Uh, Alan Kupperberg. And, and, uh, and, and they used the name Alan Kupperberg, uh, which is my late brother. Right. Uh, so, you know, I almost got mentioned, except somebody in the production got mixed up. And when they checked, they came up with Alan instead of Paul. So once again, that bastard, <laughs> even from the grave. You heard it here on The Marvelous. <laughs> you know, that is that is just, you can't make that up. I mean, really. Nope. Uh, just just a little side note, too. It, it, to me, it's starting to sound like it's an old radio drama uh, that we're hearing. Or... Or Paul is uh, near a uh, crackling fire, but we have a little ambiance going on here, and hope you uh, you don't uh, you know it's all part of this episode package, one of a kind at that. Oh no, what you're hearing? I I live in a room uh, made out of entirely of bubble wrap, so <laughs> that must be what you're picking up. I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that. Got the big bowl of rice krispies you got there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And in regards to just the overall reaction, did you expect to see the characters of both Peacemaker and Vigilante be characters of this high regard in the year of 2022? Because I did not. That's not on my bingo card. It was not anywhere on my radar. Um, uh, you know, I never... It's so hard to explain. Like, I'm going to be 67 years old in June. Uh, and uh, so that means when I was growing up, we had reruns of Superman, 
uh, you know, the George Reese Superman uh, in the afternoons. We had uh, uh, Guy Williams' Zorro, which kind of counted as a superhero. He had a cape. Yeah, uh, and a mask. And then, and then we had Batman. And, you know, there was Saturday morning cartoons, but that didn't really get into superhero stuff until the later mid-60s. But still, you know, this stuff was just unheard of. Uh, you know, my whole life, until, you know, until the, the 2000s, it was like, yeah, here's, here's a little tidbit here, here's a little here, here's, you know, Red Brown is Captain America. Ooh, well, that was, okay, never mind. You know, <laughs> but, you know, and even those bad Marvel, the 70s and 80s Marvel shows, Doctor Strange, if you, you know, put real acting and special effects to it, wasn't actually bad. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that Spirit movie was, was pretty good. Uh, you know, better than people remember it. Um, but, you know, and otherwise you would get things like uh, The Phantom, which, again, I liked. Yeah, I thought it was a good movie, uh, The Shadow. You know, few and far between. Now all of a sudden, there's so much of this stuff that they have to go looking into, like, Ant-Man? <laughs> when the hell would Ant-Man ever be a star? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, where did that? When did that happen? I don't know. Twenty fifteen um, is that when the first movie? Came? <laughs> yeah, but you know, so you know, all these these secondary characters. Um, I mean, you know, look at the uh, Star Girl. Look at uh, you know, they're plucking all these these obscure characters that you know nobody knows. And again, you know, this stuff fans think it's made for them, but it's really not. Um, it's um, uh, it, it's all this obscure stuff that. Like, why do people want to see this? Even Aquaman getting movies. Like, well, that's a surprise. And I have high regard for Aquaman. You know, I've, I've written the character. I think he's, I think he's great if handled correctly. Um, but, you know, like, how did, how did this happen, though? How did all these, you know, Iron Man, I say, how did he become the breakout Marvel, you know, the, the center of the Marvel Universe? They must have pulled out a bunch of names and drawn them out of a hat or rolled the dice into whatever corner and said, okay, we're going to go. No, I, you know, we may, we'll get that you eventually. Know, uh, you know, I have, I, I have been, I've been around this stuff. I've been, you know, on, on, on all sides of the table on, on, you know, creating and editing and writing and licensing and, and talking to people about, you know, variations on, on the characters. And um, you just don't know. It's, it, it's, uh, it, you know, somebody can come in, like, you know, Gunn came in with a great idea for Suicide Squad. So, you know, it gets made. Uh, when I was, you know, again, from in my experience, Suicide Squad was this kind of, you know, throwaway, semi-failed, uh, um, you know, 1960s comic with nice art by Andrew and Esposito and crazy stories by Bob Kennedy. Um, but... You know, big box office now. So, you know, I'm surprised, um, but I'm mostly surprised that, you know, finally something that I had a hand in gets picked up. Um, You know, I I kind of have this this idea in the way in the back of my head that, you know, it's like, you know, DC has never reprinted most of my, most of the work I did. You know, uh, Arion's never been reprinted, and, and Checkmate, and, uh, you know, whatever. Um, and, and so, 
You know, I thought that, that like somebody would come along and go, yeah, Peacemaker, and they go, no, no, Kupperberg was involved. We don't, you can't have that. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you, you know, so to your credit, on that level, I'm surprised. You, well, you've also got what the uh, Doom Patrol revival. Has anything come across? You know, Doom for Patrol that? got reprinted. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. That got. Uh, but that was just like two years ago that uh, mm-hmm. the, the Brown Days Omnibus got uh, uh, printed, and uh, you know, because of the TV show, and uh, and you know, they even in one episode in in the first season they used. Uh, they use some of my characters, you know, from my run. So, um, you know, I thought it was. And on Supergirl, they used a couple of my minor characters, you know, villains or something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, little little stuff got picked up. I didn't expect anything like uh, uh, like this. And you know, although when when James Gunn uh, tweeted something uh, like, uh, "So, what should my next DC project be?" Um, I immediately uh, sent. You know, uh, uh, put up an image of, of Checkmate. Mm-hmm. And his response was, hmm, that's worth thinking about. So. Okay. And it, it's very interesting because over at Marvel, like you had said, you know, they'll, they'll go with obscure kind of characters. They, you know, aren't banking truly. Like, again, I will always say this on the show, and I'm going to say another thing too, mm-hmm. but Groot is a household name, whereas over at the Distinguished Competition, Superman? No, you don't want Superman. You want Batman. You want nothing but Batman. <laughs> you don't like any other character but Batman. Like you know. Well, you know, I, I think there's this this myth has grown around Superman that you just can't do him right. Nobody can do Superman. What do you do with Superman? And I always just you know click on the TV through black and white channel eleven in 1962. Yep. And go you know truth. Justice in the American way. Well, there you go. Absolutely. There's a book for you. Right. Um, but, you know, it, 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 this stuff gets overthought and complicated. You know, what, what originally was created, I'm going to go into my lecture. Here. What was originally <laughs> created as entertainment for children and subliterate adults has now grown into a legitimate, uh, you know, art form has now grown up to become, uh, you know, something that the, the, the people who grew up reading it still want to continue to experience, but they don't want to continue experiencing the juvenile stuff they grew up on. They want to read something commiserate with their, you know, experience and, and, and range of knowledge. So they want comic books to grow up, which is all well and good, except as soon as you start putting a, a reality test like that on superheroes about being grown up and reasonable and rational, it all falls apart mm-hmm. because none of it works. I mean, the very fact that in the entire history of humanity, there is not a single record of somebody putting on a costume and going out to fight crime, other than like, you know, a one-off gag or a bit or, you know, uh, you know, uh, but nobody has done a Batman or a Daredevil in the entire history of humanity. What does this tell you about the idea? Exactly. If you want, if you want this stuff to exist in a real world, because in the real world, this stuff doesn't exist. And as soon as you start trying to rationalize it, it you know, it becomes sillier and sillier. You know, it, it always reminds me that uh, that. 
Superman story from the uh, from the eighties uh, or from the seventies by Pasco, Martin Pasco and and, and Kurt Swan. Um, you know, where, where it was revealed that the reason people don't suspect Clark to be Superman is because he puts out this super hypnotic thing that makes people see him as, you know, something a little different. And it even works over the, the television camera lens. And people read that and, and even at the time went, well, that's the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. <laughs> And Marty Pasco, who wrote it, said, because Julie Schwartz said, no, this is it, write that, you know. Marty Pasco believed that was the stupidest fucking thing he had ever heard <laughs> and was embarrassed every time somebody brought up the story. But come up with an explanation for why a spit curl and a pair of glasses are all that stand behind, between, you know, Superman and Clark Kent. You know, come up with a story that rationalizes why people don't recognize them. I mean, we've just lived through two years of people walking around masked. And did you ever stop to go, oh, that's my, that's my best pal, Bob, because he had a mask on? No, you recognize Bob even with a friggin' mask on. Well, it's funny because, uh, you know, uh, with the whole issue of how we are in these COVID times with the masks, I was at a comic shop and, you know, nearby and near us who, uh, Tom Brevoort, the uh, Marvel editor, lives near us. Mm -hmm. And I ran into him, and I knew it was Tom Brevoort because, one, he had the hat on. Two, <laughs> it was a Doctor Who face mask. I'm like, yeah, that's Tom Brevoort. Yeah. But, but yeah. it's very, it's very much, hey, it's you know super easily identifiable with this stuff. Yeah, Paul, what? I'm finding this out right now from Peter as well as you, so there. You didn't, I didn't tell you that? No, you did not. I, yeah, we were talking about the show, too. Jeez. Well, that's anyway, a good thing. Was, that was free comic book and his, day. And his next appearance on The Marvelous. Which, well, fingers uh, crossed very soon. i got to message him. But I digress. Our number, anyway. Our number one source for information, for sure. One, th But the one thing that I you know, I was getting at with this whole thing of you know, lesser-known characters, too, uh, Marvel like will heavily roll the dice and be successful with these lesser-known characters. Like I said, the Guardians well, of the Galaxy. Let, let, me, let me just, you know, clear... Change the way you you think about this to begin with. They are lesser known characters to comic book fans and readers. They are on equal footing with the Flash or Aquaman with the general public and Superman and Batman. Yeah, you know, like I have cousins who were, you know, within a month of uh, of me and my brother, and you know, all around the same age, um, and we grew up in, uh, in in buildings right next door to each other. You know, and uh, I remember when I was 12 or 13, they had moved out to Rockaway and I was there for a sleepover and we were talking about stuff. And I mentioned something about Lex Luthor and they had no idea who Lex Luthor was. Right. You know, because they didn't read comics, but they were my cousins. We lived next door to each other. We played all the time, but they, they didn't know who Lex Luthor was and they were barely cognizant of Superman. Um, I mean, it's harder to not be cognizant of certainly the, the upper echelon, you know, the Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, uh, you know, uh, level of characters. But for most people, they're just names. They're just, oh, Linda Carter, uh, George Reeves, Christopher Reeves. Um, you know, they're not, as far as they're concerned, the Eternals is no different than Superman. Yeah. Well, right, right. When you mentioned, you know, with actors and actresses like uh, Michael or like uh, Linda Carter, whenever I think of the man himself, 
I don't associate him as Batman. I associate him as Michael Keaton Batman when I'm referring to that portrayal. So. Yeah, well, you know, it's easy to do that with Batman, especially because, you know, every everybody has played him so differently. Um, you know, uh, I thought you were going to say everyone's he, played Batman. I'm like, yeah, I probably did at least one point. You know, 1993. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, but you know, but but everybody has a different interpretation. You know, I thought Ben Affleck kicked ass. I, I thought his Batman was terrific. Same. Um, because most importantly, he can play Bruce Wayne. You know, it's not about playing Batman because 90% of the time that you see Batman on the screen, it's, it's, it's an animation or it's some stuntman in the suit, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but playing Duke Wayne is the test. That's why I thought Michael Keaton was good. He played a he had a great interpretation of Bruce Wayne. Um, the rest is, you know, the rest is special effects. Now, obviously, it's coming up uh, very soon. And because, you know, it's very timely to talk about this. What are your thoughts on the upcoming The Batman? Um, I'll let you know when I see it. I don't, you know, it, it looks interesting, um, uh, but I don't put much pre-thought into these things um, because, uh, A, I know they're not um, uh, and B, um, you know, I, I know that, every again, everybody has their own interpretation. So right. they're going to do something vastly different, and I may like it. Or I may not, but we'll see. And also, Michael Houston's a friend of mine, so I'm sure it'll be wonderful. He is the boy who loved Batman. He does love Batman, let me tell you, and he should. Batman's been very, very nice to him. <laughs> yes. Paul, what would you say, um, I see some of the information I was able to find out was the first comic book miniseries that your name is attached to, World of Krypton, 1979. The idea came about how, if you can recall... Um, yeah, sure. It's um, it, it was actually comics' first uh, miniseries, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it was originally scheduled to appear in um, the revived showcase. I think it was supposed to be in number one hundred four to one hundred six, and then um, and it was going to be coming out in conjunction with the Superman the movie. And Superman the movie got pushed back, so well, the Krypton got pulled from showcase and by the time the movie was back on schedule showcase was canceled so dc just put it out on its own as a as a a, you know as a self-contained miniseries uh you know there's there's an ad you know they don't call it a miniseries i don't think the term was was in popular use then you know um but um yeah, the ad just shows all three issues, and you know, and 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 and, uh, and sells it as a limited series. So, so it was purely accidental. I was going to say other things happened to cause that to happen, uh, other than you know the idea not maybe being thought of. Like, well, how do we tell it's only going to last this long? It's not going to be a long, drawn out story, multiple yeah. issues, and who knows how well, long. Showcase was traditionally three issue. Uh, three issue arcs. Mm-hmm. So that's the the only thing that determined that. Um, and uh, then I think there was a uh, Legends of the Batman miniseries, and then the next one after that was the Secrets of the Legion of Superheroes, which I also worked on. Yeah, I think um, I, I think of DC when I when I recall, like you said, 
a three-issue miniseries that DC did in that number frequently. I think of Marvel mostly when it's four and it says limited series. Yeah. And then, then we they get got to... Around, they, they eventually, it got, you know, uh, it, it got bumped up to four issues. But uh, at first it was three. But again, that was just, you know, the showcase tradition. You know, I had done three issues of uh, the new Doom Patrol, and then uh, uh, Paul did uh, the three issues of uh, Power Girl, and, uh, and then Showcase 100, which was uh, uh, another thing that needs to be reprinted. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that one, because, you know, you Marvel guys, not very fast, from what I understand. But um, it, was a, uh, it was the anniversary issue of Showcase, and uh, Paul Levitz and I wrote it, and Joe Staten drew it, and it featured every character that never appeared in Showcase. Well, let's in, put it condense it. Let me condense it this way for you, Paul. <laughs> and the audience knows this already. Peter has read a lot. I need to read a lot. Yes, you do. <laughs> and I'm so well, much older, it's ridiculous. Well, but, the, the yeah. funniest thing is we have our uh, Patreon bonus show called... You haven't read that? And currently Eddie is uh, plowing through Crisis on Infinite Earths for yes, the very the first time. 12-issue maxi-series. And then yeah. the next one we're going to be doing, I decided I want to give him a bit of a reprieve. It's going to be a one-issue. A what? You're going to be reading only one book. And guess what issue that's going to be? From Infinite Crisis on Infinite Earths? No, you're going to be reading. No, oh, the no next way. one. No, no, no way. Sorry, the next one after. Okay. Yeah, your your February or April assignment will be uh-huh. something for the man who has everything. <laughs> Superman what, uh, annual. So you only have to read 30-something pages. Oh, okay. Hooray, and so forth. Hooray. But okay, good. I like how I just sprung a homework assignment on Eddie in the middle of the show. Yes, you do. Yeah, but at least it's not a bad one. It's like saying, you know, writing a book report saying, talk about your dog Spot. Spots my dog. Yeah, Paul, this Oof. is a guy who hasn't had a bingo card since ni- since 1998. 88, what? sorry. I like bingo. He's, he's late to the game. You said a bingo card, you know, since whatever, but yeah. it's only since 1988. We both go back further than that. Anyway. Alrighty then. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm out of this. Yeah, no, I don't blame Paul whatsoever. <laughs> I'm, I'm just sitting here wondering what's for dinner. That's all. What is no. for dinner? I don't know. Something with chicken. I mean, I'll, I'll see. So one of the things in regards to, you know, you're a staple of the uh, tri-state convention scene. I've seen you so many times at Mitch Halleck's Terrificon, uh, Connecticut's only Terrific Comic Con, uh, located at the Mohegan Sun Casino this August. In Uncasville. Connecticut. Yes. Yeah. It's can... a good show. It's a, it, it's know, a very good show. And, and, and it's a fun show. And I remember uh, when I went to that show, the very first time I met you, I sat with you, and, you know, this was when I was trying to be, you know, an aspiring comic writer and whatnot, and I remember sitting asking you for advice on writing. And, and I, I tried to sell you my book. Yeah. <laughs> that's well, the, that's you, how that goes. That's a good man. Yeah. You did send me – You did, I did purchase uh, your book on co- writing comics, and on the inscription – You mean Paul Kupperberg's Illustrated Guide to Writing Comics? Still and, available on Amazon.com? And I have the only signed copy where you told me whether or not you've been in a submarine. (laughs) And you drew a submarine, which made that even better. (laughs) I vaguely remember that. You know, before we're getting ready for this, too, I realized, and I said, I know I'd gotten Paul to sign something, and it was a Savage Sword of Conan issue. And I said, wait, that's it? I said, I've seen your name, I've seen your name. I said, not only do I have a lot of comic books to read, I have a lot of Paul Kupperberg stuff to catch up on, too. Yeah, well, I, the only thing I ever wrote for Marvel was that issue of Savage Sword, a fill-in issue of uh, Captain America, mm-hmm. 
and um, a whole bunch of crazy movie parodies for several years. But I mostly worked for crazy, Larry Hama. Larry Hama causes people to go crazy. We we like no. Larry. <laughs> Larry Hama's a sweetheart. Yes. <laughs> Gentle as a lamb. I think it's, it's I think he's getting a bad uh, a bad uh, reputation. No, Larry's a good guy. Not from us. Larry gave me a cup of coffee once. He, yes. Yeah. He did. So I you know I'm I'm in agreement. It got me you know, kept me awake that morning. So There you go. Larry Hama, good people. Mm-hmm. Anyway, in regards to there, there was something else I was gonna say. I'm, I'm a great interviewer, ladies and gentlemen. Eddie, you'll you'll go first. Yeah, I'll go first. Yes. Okay. Well, I saw in some of the work you've done, Paul, uh, getting into the Tom and Jerry newspaper strip. How did you wind up going to that uh, medium, if you will? Oh, uh, well, that was my return to that medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had previously been, and in fact, funny you should mention it. I uh, I just finished writing a column on that for ThirteenthDimension.com. Uh, uh, my work on the uh, the Superman newspaper strip in the 1980s. Um, I took over writing that from uh, from Paul Levitz in 1981 and wrote it through the end till in in early '85. And um, so I had you know written several years of, of the Superman newspaper strip, and then in the early '90s, '89, '90. Um, uh, I was uh, asked by um, uh, Rich Maruzio, who was the uh, uh, artist on the Tom and Jerry strip, uh, if, if if I wanted to do some writing for it. You know, he was running out of ideas, and and uh, so yeah, I did. Uh, I wrote about six months of it, and I understand why he ran out of ideas. It <laughs> it was you know it was fun to do, but there were several restrictions uh, that. You know, made it tough to to to, to, to maintain uh, the strip. You know, you couldn't show actual violence. Mm-hmm. Like you know, they could chase each other, but you can't catch anyone, and you certainly can't you know hurt them when you do. Um, we couldn't do uh, puns because most of the clients for the strip were uh, uh, in other languages in, co- in other countries. So, you know, it was a tough strip to do. Uh, but, yeah, I did that for for a while. Well, I was, I was, yeah, it was just, you know, I knew, I knew somebody, yeah. and they, they asked. See, you just said about the whole idea of, you know, no puns because of the translation. I thought you would have said no puns because Tom and Jerry are mostly silent characters, other than, you well, know, they're screams. Well, they're not in the strip. At least they weren't in the strip back then. I there need to check that out. Well, just thinking about the whole concept of the strip, you only have so many panels, maybe four panels to work with, and to you tell that three, yeah. three, yeah, and to you know maintain, try to tell something that's going on in that short period is is one thing. Plus, I guess having to do it five days a week. Well, you know, you're limited in in the situations you can you can do in, in a humor strip. I mean, you know, a continuity, uh, an action adventure strip is easy. You just you're telling the story. You're just telling it in, you know, a slightly different manner in, in, in little, you know, three quick bite chunks mm-hmm. uh, a day, uh, you know. But that's easy. Your, your first panel, uh, panel one, is um, is a recap of some sort of how we got to this moment. Mm-hmm. Panel two, something new happens to move the story forward. And panel three is your setup 
to make them want to come back and read tomorrow. Yeah, that's a tried and true formula, it sounds like, yeah. Yeah, and with a humor strip, you know, you don't need the cliffhanger, so you've you've got the, uh, it's really, you've just got your beginning, middle, and end. You've got your setup, you've got your, you know, your your, your, your middle of the joke, and your punchline. So, So, you know, that was pretty, the formula itself is easy, um, but the things you can do, to get to the punchline, were were limited. Um, uh, fortunately, I was allowed to use other characters, you know, other uh, 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 you know, there was a cat, uh, another another cat. No, a screwy squirrel was one of them. It was a screwy squirrel. The Tex Avery a, character, huh? The Tex Avery character, the orange one. You might be, yeah. I don't know. There was a squirrel character, a wacky squirrel, screwy squirrel. I don't know. Um, I don't remember. It was, you know, 30 years ago. And, hey, yeah. Uh, but um, so there were a bunch of other characters, uh, you know, the dog and his son, Spike and Tyke. And, yeah, right. And, uh, a few others. So, you know. I don't know why, but Eddie's tone of voice just now about that character was like, yeah, all right. No. <laughs> like, you, like you had a hatred of the character. No, not at all. I totally remember. I just couldn't think of the names. When you said the, 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 the two dogs, the father and the son, and I just couldn't think of the names. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I remember them. And he, and that was, I think, one of the first times I remember any cartoon character in Tom and Jerry actually speaking, and it was the bigger dog. I mean, Tom, uh-huh. and, Jerry, Tom and Jerry sometimes speak, but only when it's like, again, screams of pain. Well, yeah, yeah yes, <laughs> and I think I don't know. Maybe that was the early Tom and Jerry that there there were voices to that, and then it you know phased I out. I think Tom and Jerry were were themselves silent from the beginning, but I okay. Uh, I certainly know the um, the Chuck Jones stuff; they were silent, right? Um, but the earlier um, uh, what do you call it? Was it Hanno Barbera? Those, those yeah, are, right. Yeah, they were the ones that took over after uh, MGM. Well, they they did them at MGM, didn't they? Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Bill yeah. and Joe were the ones that created them there, and yeah. then eventually they brought it. Over. Like I guess I think they right. took the license. Well, or something. MGM, MGM closed their their everybody closed their animation. So, um, well, who doesn't yeah. love Warner Brothers Cool Cat, or whatever his name was? Great. Uh, the, the one voiced the one voiced by the guy from F Troop. Voiced by uh, Larry Storch? Yeah, Larry Storch voiced oh, Cool Cat. Oh, uh, um, Hep Cat? Maybe it was Hep uh, Cat. Top Cat. Top Cat? Not Top Cat. That was no, the yellow one. Cat. Yeah, the, right. this is like the tiger that was chased by the overly British guy in the uh, safari hat. Oh, oh, Tennessee. It was a part of the Tennessee Tuxedo Show. Okay. No, no, dip, no this no. is uh, Warner. No? <laughs> We're going through them all. How, do I hear Huckleberry Hound? <laughs> wow. <laughs> but anyway, anyway. One other thing, by the way, in your career, Paul, you worked for WWE Kids Magazine. How did I that? Sure did. How did that come about? And did you meet the head honcho himself, Vince McMahon? Uh, well, how it came about was uh, I was working freelance on staff at DC in their collected editions department in 2009-ish. They had called me in to. Uh, yeah, essentially, I was just sitting there and creating the book maps and the, 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 the dummy books of the next, you know, as many years of, of the showcase presents books as I could. 
Um, you Thank know, you for those, by the way. They a list, and I was just like, you know, I had this, this shelves full of, you know, binders with, uh, with, with showcase editions planned out. But um, at some point, my phone rang, and the receptionist had sent this call to me because she knew, you know, she knew me from when I was on staff and also that, you know, I knew my way around the place. So um, she put this guy through to me, and he said, He's uh, Tony Romando, and he's uh, editor at uh, man, uh, editor at WWE, and um, he's uh, they're launching a kids magazine, and uh, they're looking for somebody who can uh, you know who can who can help do comic strips and artwork and stuff and you know for the magazine, and I said oh yeah I know the perfect person, and so you know uh, I lived uh, ten minutes up the road here in Sanford, Connecticut, from uh, WWE headquarters. So it was real easy to go in for the job interview. Um, so, yeah, I recommended myself and uh, went in for the interview and got the job and lasted uh, 10 weeks. See, before you had the selfie, you had the self-referral, and that works. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it was just lucky. I mean, you know, fortunately, I have the chops for it, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but, um, you know, and so I did. I was there for a while. I um, I got a bunch of strips started, uh, and I hired uh, uh, Joe Staten and John Byrne and, and Steve Lytle and uh, 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 some other cartoonists and, and stuff. I was writing these strips, um, uh, wrestling strips, and, and uh, you know, and then they, I don't know what happened, but after after a few weeks, they decided that maybe, you know, illustrations and comics in a kid's magazine weren't the way to go. Did you say John yeah. Byrne was on there and Steve Leith? Steve Lytle and John Byrne, yeah. I need to um, check that out. In the, in the first issue of, uh, of, of WWE Kids Magazine, um, they, they ran the strips and they were gone by the second issue. Um, hmm. But yeah, there, there's uh, John did the Hardy, Bo- the Hardy Brothers, you know, whatever the um, the Hardys in space, and uh, uh, Steve Lytle did. Um, I don't know. I knew. Uh, by the way, I knew shit all about wrestling when I took the job. Mm. Like I didn't know anything, but my reasoning, uh, my, my feeling was that you know, a there's an internet, and b um, you know, pro wrestling and and superhero comics are not that different at all no and it's on the job training too yeah no i mean you know it's like i needed characters i I went on the database and i looked up who did what and who had what you know character stick and all that um it was it was great there was uh there was this dwarf man um who who was who was wrestling at the time i loved him hornswoggle yeah yeah hornswoggle he was you know the 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 storyline was that he was mcmahon's son illegitimate son um Love that guy. He was great. But that was it. As part of the job, you, you're required to watch it, the, the shows. Mm. And uh, I think you're supposed to attend at least four live events a year. So fortunately, I wasn't on long enough to have to go to a live event. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I worked for, um, I worked for uh, uh, Sean. Sean. Uh, I was in his department. In fact, my... 
it was an open floor plan, but my desk, you know, my part of the desk kind of like almost directly opposite his, his office. Um, so I saw him frequently and I kept an action figure of him on my desk looking at his office, <laughs> um, which seemed to unnerve him a little, but he never spoke to me, which I think was good. You unnerved him. Why should he talk to you? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I was also like, you know, I was 50-something, you know, and I was the oldest guy by like 20 years mm. in, in, in the in, in the place. So it was uh, it was a weird setup. Well, all I know right now is I'm currently on eBay buying myself a copy of WWE Kids Magazine number 1, and somebody's <laughs> going to be signing that when I see him at Terrificon, Connecticut's only <laughs> Terrific Comic Con in Uncasville, Connecticut at the Mohegan Sun Casino. Good luck with that. All right. Paul, That's right. Paul, yes. you've, been, you've been warned. Okay. I wanted to yeah. go back, if I could, to one other character you mentioned, and that's Arion, Lord of Atlantis. I did pick up the series when it came out to, I don't know if it was the full run, and I'm, of course, reading about him a little more with this crisis on Infinite Earths and all mm -hmm. the DC characters. How how would you describe it, you know, coming about, you co-created that character, uh, and I want to try and get an idea, not that there has to be a comparison, but if you would uh, equate that to the Marvel side, is it is Arion part uh, Prince uh, Prince Namor or part Doctor Strange? No. Okay. No. Yeah. Um, he is... Uh... Uh, I don't know. He's just you know arrogant young uh, uh, you know young apprentice uh, character. Um, uh, I guess you could. Well, Doctor Strange is only arrogant young apprentice character for like two pages until he became Sorcerer Supreme. But um, uh, no, it was just uh, you know. I mean, he was he. I say young, but he was you know many thousands of years old because he's immortal. Um, but. Uh, yeah, it was, you know, the, the basic concept was, uh, was you know, in the title of Larry Niven's Atlantean book, uh, Atlantis book, the magic goes away. <laughs> and that was like, well, that would make a good strip. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, Atlantis when in the, in the waning days of the magic before the, uh, before everything went underwater. Um, so that's, that's the basis of the idea. I don't think I don't know if you would rule. I wouldn't rule out this character, Arion, or or the Warlord, where he first appeared, into maybe eventually along the DC line coming to more than just in the comic books. Oh please, Game of Fucking Thrones with Arion, please. Oh, I could turn that into yes. It would take it would take nothing to transform that into a violent, uh, you know, sword and sorcery. Uh, 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 ongoing drama. I need a cash register sound. ka -ching! Yeah, there we go. Oh, listen. Like I said, I'm going to be 67 in June. If I'm going to get the big chunk of change, it should be now. You know? Yes, this is this is the time, <laughs> correct. While I can still use it and still have fun with it. Lord knows what's left for all of us. Yes. This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows. One, Fantastic Voyage, where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. 
some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice. Or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. So now the original reason that we had brought Paul on was to talk about the Marvel novels. And these are from the 1970s, 1980s. And Marvel's actually been recently redoing some of these as audiobooks. And yeah, I heard that. That's oh, a good I, pun, by the I, way. I like what you did there. That's good. That's very good. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes, that was my intention. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> And then the bubble wrap stopped sounding. <laughs> it's a clear line now. What happened? Oh, I think I lifted the microphone off my shirt. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Ran out of bubble wrap. Were oh, you wearing a sweater? Yeah. You know, I, I'm 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 about to embark on a series of, of long, you know, online interviews myself for a book I'm I'm planning to do, um, and uh, uh, you know, uh, every little lesson I can learn. Um, uh, is valuable about uh, about this podcasting thing. You and me both, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my Zoom subscription. Only, now what? <laughs> yeah, right. no. Listen, we're only ten years apart, but you know, longer between myself and Peter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now, once again, going back over to those Marvel books. Yes. What? What? How did those come about? And who was the person that was the one that recommended you to do them? Um. Well, I, you know, Pocketbooks signed a deal with Marvel, uh, with uh, uh, Marv Wolfman and Len Wein as packagers to do a dozen, uh, to do a, a series of, of a dozen novels. Uh, Marv and Len wrote the first, and they were on short deadline, pretty short deadline. Um, you know, I think they wanted to bring these out monthly. And um, uh, so, you know, Marv and Len, of course, couldn't write all of them, so they just started approaching people. And I was up at Marvel uh, uh, delivering stuff to Larry Hama. And uh, I saw Len, and he said, you want to write a novel? <laughs> and I went, all my life. No, I didn't say that. I, but uh, but I, yeah, I said, of course, yes. And he goes, all right, we've got these you know, 12 books, and we need to write them quick, and you have this you know, X amount of time to do it, and, and it pays $2,000. Can you do it? And it's like, you bet. Um, and I had no idea. At that point in time, um, I don't think I had ever even finished a short story, a short prose story. Mm. You know, I, I've started many, but I don't think I'd ever written the end to a story. Um, it helped that Marv, you know, they, they, had a, uh, they, they had a page, you know, a one-page outline for, for, the, for the story. So that helped, you know, put me on track. But I really just like, you know, it was literally you want to write a novel, and the next thing I know, I'm writing a novel, and um, it was it was you know a short deadline, and I uh, somehow managed to get whatever it was, the fifty or fifty-five thousand words, and you know when I turned that one in, they went great. You want to do another one, <laughs> just as fast? So that's how I got the second one. Well, it looks like yeah, they came out in the same year, and. Yeah, I assume. Yeah, yeah so I, I think because I did recently acquire a copy of, and it's number eight, the Amazing Spider-Man Crime Campaign with the uh, Kingpin ready to swing a, a street sign at Old Spidey. Yeah, that's a great cover. But it is. It true. It really is. Bob Larkin, I think, is the yep. artist on that. Yep. Yep. Okay. 
Uh, so I'm just really getting into it now, and it's and it's it's very cool to have what I know about Spider-Man visually, comic books especially, the uh, 66 or 67 TV show, etc. And then to get into this and, you know, being able to paint the picture of what I'm reading at the same time, it's very cool. Yeah, I, I, I think the first um, uh, prose versions of, of uh, comic book characters I read were the 1960s Batman novelizations by uh, uh, Winston Lyons, hmm. uh, who was actually William Woolfolk writing under a pseudonym. But um, there was Batman and the Three Zones of Doom and, you know, Batman and the Four Villains, whatever they were. But even though they were, you know, they were the silly mid-60s Batman version of Batman, but it was fascinating to me that how, you know, it's like this kind of superficial look you get at what's going on in a comic book story uh, or even on a TV, you know, a half-hour TV show, you just kind of, you're seeing the surface. You know, you're, you're, you get very limited information about what's going on in their heads. You know, it's mostly, it's mostly visual. You're seeing what they do. Yeah. Um, but in a novel, you're like, you're in there. You know, you're, you're working, you're, you're, you're there go, going along with their thought process and, and, and how they're acting and reacting and what they're thinking and what they're, you know, so it's like this very intimate, closer look at these characters. And I love that. And then they with um, uh, 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 Captain America and the Great Gold Seal, which was, you know, a really well done uh, book. Um, uh, you know, and, and then well, there was Otto Binder's uh, The Avengers and the and the Earthwrecker, but that was not very well done. That was, um, but you know, but that was it. I was hooked. I loved that stuff. I mean, I collected everything I had. You know, the Black Hawk, there was a Black Hawk novelization. There was, uh, you know, uh, Challenges of the Unknown, um, whatever. Was, I loved it. And then, you know, I got the opportunity to work on it. So it was it was fun. Well, Dorkon, too. Really... I mean, if, if like you said, there were indeed 12. Because, I mean, for me, I just happened to randomly come upon this. And also paperback um, novels of, let's say, the first several issues of Fantastic Four, Amazing Spider-Man, right. Incredible, all that stuff in color. Uh, but but the novels they just happen to show up randomly at whatever comic book store I'm at, and you I guess got two in a row. This one again being number eight, I guess the ninth one was what Hulk and Spider Man. Uh, no Martin. no, uh, 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 mine were number eight and number eleven. Okay, left, which turned out to be the last one. So there um, were eleven. Okay, there were there were twelve written. Uh, yeah. William Rossler wrote a Silver Surfer novel. But it got mixed because at that time policy was that only Stan got to write Silver Surfer. Mm -hmm. And by the way, one other thing, you know, going away from the Marvel stuff, and one last little thing. Thank God. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to do a little bit of Columbo. Just one more thing. You killed Archie. Not once, but yeah, twice. I, <laughs> yeah. How did I killed a lot of people. I killed uh, Archie. I killed Vigilante. I killed Aquababy, I killed the Stinker, I killed a whole bunch of the Doom Patrol members. Um, you know, I'm a comic book uh, serial killer. With the Archie one, though, Archie is a brand that has the most bizarre, strange things, yet it works. You have Archie meets the B-52s, Archie meets the Ramones, Archie meets Sharknado, Archie meets the Predator. Archie's going to get killed this month. How does that happen? Um, because... While 
everybody just looks at Archie as that silly redheaded teenage character. Um, they are actually very well developed, complex characters. I, you know, it was interesting. I wrote, uh, I started writing for Archie in 2008 or nine, I think. Uh, yeah, I just called Victor Gorlick and and you know pitched him some stuff, and he started buying the you know the six eight the six and eight page uh, you know humor stuff, and I realized you know my first story was about Archie picking up uh, Mrs. Lodge's dog from the groomer and getting him to the uh, to the dog show, and you know everything goes wrong and Archie you know goes through hell to keep the dog out of the mud and you know finally gets there he's a wreck. Uh, and, you know, Veronica still yells at him for being late. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but Archie, uh, Archie will kill himself. He will break his neck trying to please people. That's Archie. You know, that's the whole character. He's a people pleaser. Everything that happens to him happens not because he's a clutch, not because he's stupid, but because he's so eager to be helpful that he falls over his own feet. You know, Veronica, you know, she's, she's, you know, not as, as tight and secure as she, as she acts. Uh, you know, Jughead, I think is the smartest kid in Riverdale. Uh, he, you know, he, he figures it out and he plays people like crazy. You know, Reggie is, 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 you know, uh, is a guy with clay feet and he knows it. Um, but he's trying to overcome it and become somebody better. Yeah, I got, you know, all these guys, I just, I walked in and it's like, as soon as I started writing them, you know, my, my whatever, 30, 40, 50 years of reading them, you know, they were just imprinted. I, I, I could get them. So when I was then asked to do this, you know, uh, Melrose Place uh, with Archie, uh, this, you know, grown-up Archie uh, living, living real lives, um, you know, you just carry that over in, into adulthood, uh, in, into, you know, uh, Archie working for Mr. Lodge uh, or, or being a teacher or whatever it is. You, you have these characters just being who they are, but just in, in a different context. And that works in everything. I mean, you know, you put them in a horror context, great. Same thing, you know. They're the same people. Um, unless the writers are pretty incompetent, and they don't tend to be these days uh, on that stuff that I've read, uh, you know, as long as you've got those, those basic bits about these guys, you can put them anywhere. And those those kind of stories are great, too, especially the original Archie stories, like, you know, a Harry Lucy or Dan DiCarlo from back in yeah. the day. You see those kind of stories, and they're a great lesson for aspiring comic creators in oh, the yeah. sense of tell a story in five or less pages. And yeah. if you can do that, you can do anything. Well, you know, that was another advantage to, to coming up when I did. Uh, you know, in the mid-'70s, there were uh, a shit ton of anthology titles out there. You know, everybody had anthology titles. Uh, you know, DC had Ghost and House of Mystery and House of Secrets, and, and, and uh, you know, Charlton had... You know, just about everything was an anthology title in, in whatever genre. Um, so, you know, there was a, a place when I started writing for D.C., uh, my first assignments were, you know, uh, uh, Stories for House of Mystery or, or Superman Family, you know, six or eight or ten pages, 
where you really can't do any damage, uh, but you can learn something. You can, you know, you learn your craft while you're doing it. Um, uh, and that doesn't exist anymore. You don't have places for newbies to, you know, to, to kill a year or two learning how to do it. See, and with me and the Archie characters, I was thinking Reggie, superficially at least, equating it over to somebody like Flash Thompson, or I could be way off. Well, you know, the Reggie, in, in one of the continuities uh, in the, the Life of the Archie comic was uh, two storylines going at the same, uh, you know, separate uh, separate storylines going. One, if Archie married Betty, the other if he had married Veronica. And in one of them, um, uh, I had him kind of drifting. He didn't know what he was, where he, where he was going, what he was supposed to do with his life. He was kind of that, the high school jock who, you know, that, that was the high point of his life was, was, was high school. Um, and now he's back in Riverdale, and I was going to mess with him. I was going to, you know, have him work at, you know, used car lots and, and whatever just to, you know, and and but once I put the character in those situations, um, you know he didn't want to go through with it. You know I, I had him working in a used car lot, and the boss was going, yeah, 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 sell this kid this piece of crap car, and you know don't worry about it. And just, Reggie couldn't do it. You know he just like, no, you know I'm not that guy. Uh, uh, and he walked away from the job. And you know so I kept you know I kept putting him through those situations just to kind of see how far I could push him. Uh, you know, sometimes really the characters do, you know, they don't tell you what they want to do, but if you're paying attention, they inform the direction you take them in. And one thing that I noticed as you're talking about the character of Reggie too, the way you were just talking about him was like somebody you actually know. And well, yeah, I spent three years with him. I know him. That's the best thing to do when you're creating these and working on these characters. Sure. You, you oh, know. no, you, you can't not. Look, you know, every every story, every short story, um, you know, I just finished a novella with a character of mine uh, for my new book, The Devil and Leo Persky, also available on Amazon.com mm -hmm. um, and direct from me, signed and personalized. But... Uh, uh, you don't mind a few plugs, do you? Nah, we're good. It's all good. Okay. <laughs> um, but I, I had written a bunch of short stories based on, you know, with this character for various anthologies, and I put them together in a new book with a, uh, with a novella. Uh, so I'm spending like, you know, three or four times the average length that I've spent with this character writing this, this longer story. And it's just, you reach a point once you get into it where even though it's a finite thing and you know you're going to be done in a few days, the character takes over your, your thought process. You know, so when I'm not working on the story, I'm sitting there thinking, all right, should I have him go this way or that way or this or that? You know, I, I don't see how you can write something without that happening. You know, if, if it's happening by rote, then you're not doing something right. One last thing I want to ask, Paul, I see in all the uh, different titles and so on that you've worked on, one of my very first comic books, and I began as a DC comic book guy, a couple of Where'd titles. Where did you go wrong? I, I know, I stopped there. I don't know where it was. Barbershop, no covers, maybe that was it, but somewhere around uh, 10 years old in the, in the mid-70s is where I started. Um, but I see you worked on about a dozen 
issues of Weird War Tales. What was um, what was oh, that yeah. like? Your your mindset. I'm I'm guessing that from what I remember reading of that comic, that each issue is its own self-contained thing, and more than one story in each one. So, yeah. what was that your was approach? One of, that was one of uh, their their horror anthologies. DC's horror anthology. I think it started in about seventy one, seventy two, and ran for usually ten years. But um, yeah, it was just it was just horror stories, but with a with a war setting, um, and um, you know basically those that era of horror stories. Uh, and I actually thought about that because I just wrote an introduction to the uh, uh, third volume of the House of Mystery Brown's Age Omnibus. Um, uh, so, but those were pretty like you know pretty standard kind of stories, like you know. You introduce the the protagonist, uh, the the protagonist, who, and he's got a particular thing about him. You know, uh, some quirk in his personality, some you know bad tendencies, whatever. And he does things happen, and whatever supernatural trap he falls into, turns his own weakness against him. Choke! How ironic. You know, so. Those were pretty much, you know, that was pretty much the formula for those stories. But, you know, you stuck a uniform on it and put a rifle in its hand, and you had a weird war tale. And, um, and that directly, Paul, I got to tell you, just sparked a memory, and I think of it uh, from time to time for different reasons, is in a weird war tale story, there's one lone soldier, American soldier, who is hungry and comes upon a vending machine of some kind, and he whacks at it, whacks at it, he gets all this loose change, and he, he laughs himself into insanity. He's like, ha, 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 all the dimes I can eat. Yeah, ha, ha, you know, whatever. That was probably a, a last man in the world uh, one-pager. Kind of thing, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there was, I think I wrote one of those. I don't remember what the what the bit was. But, um, you know, but it's just, I mean, writing those little vignettes could be, you know, could be cool and interesting, and sometimes, you know, you never knew who the artist was going to be. So, uh, you know, the, uh, I, I see the story and it was like, oh, wow, Howard Chaikin. That's nice. <laughs> or um, uh, one time I, uh, I didn't see it until the book was published. And it was uh, uh, a weird war tale story that was uh, uh, drawn by, by George Evans. The George Evans, the EC Comics, you know, great George Evans. The, the secret agent Corrigan, George Evans drew my crappy little weird war tale story. I was like, wow, this is cool. Well, that just means yeah. that Forrest Gump was right. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never oh. know what you're going to get. Yes, well, I, I, Paul Levitz was the editor, and and years later I said, you know, how did I, you know, how, how did I wind up with George freaking Evans, you know, drawing that story? And Paul said, you know, these guys would come in and they'd have a, you know, a, 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 a weak hole in their schedule, and, and they'd say, well, you know, you got a short story for me? And, you know, George came in. Your script is probably the next one on top of the pile. <laughs> so really is a box of chocolate. So now, Paul, we're going to wrap this episode up. But before we go, thank you so much from both of us for speaking with us on the program today. Sure. And before we go, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Oh, on social media? Um, uh, well, I have uh, my website, com. Uh, where I put all kinds of things from you know, stuff I've written, uh, pieces I've, I've written to uh, 
historical finds I may come across in my in my files to uh, to whatever. And I'm also on uh, Facebook and Twitter. And uh, I'm trying to do more Instagram, but uh, I just don't feel the Instagram. I don't know what it is, but I'm trying. And once again, we can also find you at a convention in Uncasville, Connecticut. Yes, we are, in fact, talking about Terrificon. Terrificon. Just rewind back to when I was making the joke. Anyway, <laughs> what what dates are those, Paul? Uh, uh, I, I uh, the dates for the, this year's uh, Terrificon. Yes, I think it's August 11th or something like that. Um, but you know, it's all up on the website. Um, uh, and I haven't gotten my official, you know, been officially announced yet. So you know, I, why should I do him a face? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Mitch and I, Mitch and I are, are good We friends. love Mitch, and it's just under six months away. But Mitch is promoting it the day, if not the week, after the the previous one finishes. So I think oh, yeah. If, yeah, it's, yeah, um, yeah. if it's a three-day thing, that will be August 12th to the 14th. Okay. I looked. I have to know. My wife's birthday is the 14th. You're a 14th. My sister-in-law is on a 14th, June 14th, in fact, and you're only about three years apart from my sister-in-law. And there you go. Well, she's single? No, I'm yeah. <laughs> A negative to that. But happy early 67 to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Bubble wrap included and and old-time radio sounding effect as well. And uh, just great finding out more. And I got to read now. I had it on the side. My... My six issue of superpowers. I'm like, oh, he's on that too. Read right. Vigilante, you coward. That I had in the day. I think it got damaged in the flood of 2011. I think I'm in trouble with the vigilante and Captain Carrot, and I forget who else. I didn't do Captain Carrot. I know. You, know I'm what? Just, you, you know. can accuse me of a lot of stuff. <laughs> Paul, an absolute Yo. pleasure and honor as always. It's been fun. Thanks. For the marvelous, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Paul Kupperberg. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior. It's Obsessed with Marvel, the Paul Kupperberg edition. Thank you, Paul, for sticking around. Well, I had no place else to be in the lock and the door is stuck, so I might as well just do that. So sorry, we'll have to send somebody over. Eventually, sure. I got coffee, I'm good. All right. What kind of coffee is it? Because we're not, we're not the marvelous if we don't talk about the kind of coffee, or at least me. Uh, well, this is a Keurig. It's a nice uh, uh, dark roast. All right. We know he's a dark roast kind of man. Oh, yes, absolutely. I'm a light roast, as I've stated many times on the show, but dark roast is I, pretty good, damn good. I, I could tell talking to you. Talking <laughs> to you yeah. Thank you. Wait. This guy's real light roast. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Go ahead. Question number 255, which says... The thing befriended, excuse me. Bref- the, the thing befriended an alien superhuman named Wondar, who later became the Aquarian. What was the Aquarian? Was it an ambassador from another planet, a soldier from another planet, a spiritual leader on Earth, or a superhero on Earth? Who was the Aquarian? He was in an issue of Marvel Two and One, I think. An ambassador from another planet, a soldier from another planet. A spiritual leader on Earth or a superhero on Earth? I'm going to go with an ambassador from another planet. Because I think we might have heard of him if he was a, either a spiritual or a superhero. Oh, for some reason now spiritual's coming to me. I don't know. I'm inclined to agree with that, to be honest. We'll go with the guess answer and choose letter A and C. 
that it is not correct. The answer is C, a spiritual leader on earth. Oh, my, I any tell sense. You, that, that was, you know, my original suggestion, uh, but, you, you know. You're full of it. <laughs> I've never heard of the guy, so, you know, I was just guessing. The Aquarian had robes and kind of that kind of, um, I think it was blue and maybe a little bit of a gold accent kind of thing. All right, let's see. Eddie Wilson, ahead. costume designer. Hey, I decorate for Halloween, and that's not where it ends. And I'm okay with that. 1842, what a year. Um, what, did you just have a nice uh, I'm delicious candy? I made a yummy sound, yes. Just flipping, flipping, and flipping some more. 1842. Like your cousin Flip Wilson? Yes. Which S.H.I.E.L.D. agent became infatuated with Elektra in Elektra Assassin, which ran from uh, 86 to 87? Uh, was it Clay Quartermain, John Garnett, Alexander Pierce, or Al... Mackenzie. I was thinking you were going to say Al Milgram. <laughs> Al Milgram. Uh, we well, love Al. You know, Al's heartbreak easier. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, right, well, I'm going to go with Quartermain because he's the only name I recognize in that group. Clay Quartermain, John Gar Garrett. I said Garnett. Uh, John Garrett. Mrs. Garrett from the Facts of Life? Yeah, I'm talking about <laughs> Al well, Alexander Pierce, we know from, from Robert Redford from Winter Soldier. And uh, Al Mackenzie. Oh, I thought he was uh, the 14th president. Never mind. <laughs> well, lecture really spans all time and space. All right, so what Iron do you think? Ironically, the 14th issue of Checkmate is currently being downloaded on my Marvel uni or DC Universe account. Oh, stop so. it. I don't care if it's true. What's your answer, well, Peter Melnick? What is yours uh, again? Say, Paul, what answer are you thinking of? <laughs> I went with uh, Quartermain. Like it's Quartermain, the only yeah. name I recognize. I'm going to go with Quartermain and the uh, the Temple of Doom. Let's go with that again. Let's choose letter A and hope for the better than this. Da, no, da, no. Da, 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 da. It's, it's B, John Garrett. Cougar Mellencamp, yes. Somebody you never... Cougar Mellencamp. Jeez, you know what? Never mind. Let's try one more. We're, we're usually about this uh, on pace for answers, so... If we're okay, getting... then I, I feel... Actually, I have no energy in invested in this at all, so... <laughs> it, it's, all, it's all good. That's, that's okay. Still breathing, having a pulse. That's what we we. This is this is for. what I aspire to. <laughs> the highest peak of mediocrity. All right, thirteen sixty-five is the number. The Don't question, I know it? <laughs> who was Nathaniel Essex? Is it Mister and Mrs. Essex? Uh, child. Child boy. Yes, Mesmero, Mister Sinister, Albion, or Britannic. Again, who was Nathaniel Essex? Mesmero. Mr. Sinister, Albion, or Britannic? Albion. Okay, without a shadow of a doubt there? Well, whenever we no book hesitation. Milgram, Albion the Mar Marvelous. Oh. I'll be on the next train out of here. Let's go. <laughs> Come on. Let's try yeah. letter C. We're going along with Paul. And <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, consistently it sounded, wrong. It sounded British, and Albion is yeah. is a, a, an old name for, for England. So. The answer is Mr. Sinister. <laughs> Nathaniel oh, Essex, Mr. Sinister. I, I knew his cousin, Mr. Evil. Sure. <laughs> I was going to go with Nathaniel Summers. <laughs> okay, so maybe it's all in the net. Uh, the net. Two, three, five, nine, and hopefully we'll get on the board. Of narrator, right guess answers. what? Uh, you know what? You need a narrator. And somebody who types up the episode synopsis. Two, three, five, nine. Almost there. My, Here we go. My synopsis one, one is more fine. page. If they're plural, they're synopsis. Are they? Two, three, five, nine. Come on down. 
you're the next contestant on We Get Them Wrong. All right, 2359, who created Silly Seal and Ziggy Pig? Oh, boy. Talk about your shot in the dark, I think. Silly Seal and Ziggy Pig. Stan Lee and Jack Binder. Al Jaffe. Ernie Hart. Or Vince Fago. Who created Silly Seal and Ziggy Pig? Stan Lee and Jack Binder. Al Jaffe. Ernie Hart. Or Vince Fago. Uh, um... A feels like a red hair, or A feels like it's the one because it's only two creators in one choice. Yeah, I, I, I have, the, yeah, I have vague memories of this Ziggy Pig. I don't remember if Pharaoh or or, or Stanla. And Jaffe um, didn't do anything with that. Okay. I, yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with Pharaoh because. Stan gets credit for everything. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Please, stop. Peter? See, I was going to go with the Stan one, to be honest. Mm-hmm. That's what it sounded like. I was kind of thinking Stan that, too. Stan boy. All right, we're going we're gonna to go. We're going to try and hit letter A for Stan and Jack, and it is no. <laughs> the answer is B, Al Jaffe. Really? Okay. I guess it has to be. Although, you, if we get a hold of Tom Brevoort. Uh, you think a yid wouldn't come up with a pig, but all right. <laughs> Not very kosher. No, no. <sighs> all right, consistently across the board, there we are. Well, uh, in my defense... Um, uh, <laughs> Your Honor. I, I, I never I never deep dove into the whole Marvel uh, thing. I, I was, you know, I read Marvel, but, you know, it, it didn't... It didn't actually, when I started reading comic books, Marvel didn't even exist. Enough said. True believer. 